John 1, 1 to 14. Let us hear the gospel. Glory be to thee, O Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Praise Christ for his glorious gospel. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Let us pray. Ever-present God, gracious Father, who from the womb of the Virgin Mary brought new life to all humanity, grant to us your Holy Spirit, that hearing your word we might receive it by faith, and thereby be born again, born from on high, and so be your sons and daughters for eternity. Through Jesus Christ, Son of Mary, Son of God. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Welcome in the name of Christ on this eighth day of Christmas. I hope you have, been a, have had a good time celebrating the coming of Christ. Pastor Matt has, which is why I'm up here this morning, and I'm happy to give him a chance to worship with his family today. Ruth and I spent last week with all five of our boys, spouses, and grandchildren in Williamsburg. We had a grand time, and our goal for this week is to recover. It's fitting, yea, even necessary to celebrate Christmas. The world was getting awful, and it was getting worse by the decade. Godly Jews, insightful pagans observed the unraveling of civilization. The pagans tried to solve mankind's problems through various religions or philosophy with no great effect. The Jews looked for a savior, the Messiah that God had promised to come and save the world. And he did. Jesus came and saved the world. Jesus completely changed the direction of history. And personally, he brought salvation to you and to me. And we would be ignorant and ungrateful wretches if we failed to celebrate such a great salvation. The essence of Christmas is that God did what man could not do. We, could not, we couldn't save ourselves from destruction, so God saved us himself. God said through Isaiah, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. Yeah, no one, could, no, one, no one could arrest the destruction of the human race. So God did it for us. When the earth was helplessly consumed by wickedness and 
hopelessly racked by violence. God came in person to save us all, and that demands at least 12 days of celebration. But our gospel text does not say that God came in person. This gospel says the word became flesh. Now, that's another one of those confusing statements, isn't it? What is the word, and how could a word become flesh? Now, if you have no interest in God and aren't interested in getting through this life and entering eternity in good shape, uh, this is the sort of rambling that is most profitably ignored. For God says these kinds of things to make us stop and wonder, to think and pray, to seek wisdom from him rather than the wisdom that we might dredge up from ourselves. It's clear in the context that word, the word, is another name for Jesus. And this saying, the word became flesh, expresses the miracle of God becoming man. That's the central mystery of of Christmas. Even for those whose knowledge of God and man is is shallow, it's evident that there is something wonderful, something amazing, that God should become man. And as we ponder this fact, questions come to mind. Well, if we ponder this fact, questions come to mind. How did God become man? Why did God become man? What difference does this make for the world? What difference does this make for me this afternoon and this week? The the Holy Spirit, speaking through the Apostle John, deliberately chose to use these curious words. The word became flesh because he wanted to communicate something unique and something wonderful about Christmas. Now, we at first encounter the word word at the very beginning of John's gospel. John's gospel is a creation account, but instead of presenting God as the creator, he introduces the word as the one who made all things. And right away, we're we're confronted with the Trinitarian nature of God. The word is God. He is also with God. Well, this is very confusing. How can someone how can someone be one thing and also be with that thing? Are we talking about one being or two? And so the church puzzled over this problem, or it might be more accurate to say it uh, fought over this problem for several centuries. And in the end, we concluded that both things are true, that God is one, one God. He's also three, and we say that he's three persons. But why call this other person the word? By the time we get to seven, verse 17, we can see that John has been talking about Jesus all along. So why didn't he just come right out and name him? And that's what we're thinking. <laughs> you know, we're down-to-earth people. Why all this run-around and rigmarole? Why, why all this confusion? Why not just spit it right out that this is Jesus? Well, the Greek word translated word here is logos. Now, much ink has been spilled over this word and its significance. I'm sure that Matt was dragged through a whole lot of unwelcome reading on this matter when he was in seminary. In Greek literature, this word takes on uh, the meaning of reason or logic. And in fact, it's the origin of our English word logic. In some Greek philosophies, logos was the original organizing principle of the universe. And some people think that this was an attempt by John to establish a connection with his Greek audience, to to speak in terms that might be somewhat familiar to them. Well, but the thing is, John was a Jew. John was not a Greek. And the more you read, the more you carefully read and think about his works, his gospels and letters, 
They breathe the spirit of the Old Testament more than the spirit of Plato. <laughs> and this simple, basic meaning of logos is communication. That's probably the all-time best English word, if you had to pick one word, <clears throat> uh, to, to, as a translation for logos. Now, there's a different Greek word which refers to a combination of letters. Chema is the Greek word for letter combinations, which mean all sorts of things, you know, like pew and lights and building and so forth. So uh, we're not talking about a rhema here. We're not talking about a letter combination. We're talking about uh, a communication, uh, an interaction between two communicating beings. Now, so we might translate uh, this passage here uh, as, uh, as uh, that uh, in the beginning was the communication. <clears throat> And, uh, and John Calvin seemed to prefer to translate it as speech, which, which also works. But, you know, it's been translated in English as the word for so many hundreds of years that I don't think you're ever going to see an English translation come out with anything other than that. So when we return to John's Gospel, we read, In the beginning was the communication, and the communication was with God, and the communication was God. And so by speaking this way, God, John confronts us with the vital truth that our God is a speaking God. Communication is inherent in God's nature. It's not something sort of added on. It's not something that he does so much as something that he is. He is a communicating being. Specifically, verbal communication is inherent to God. In the beginning, God spoke. That's the first thing that happened. Speaking is so vital to God's nature that he can even be called the speaking, the word, the speaking, the communication, because he is the origin of all communication. So even before time, God spoke to himself. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit talked to each other. And as he created the earth, God did so by speaking. Uh, let me read a few verses from Psalm 33. <laughs> For the word... The word, the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. God also governs the world by his word. Psalm 147 says, He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters hoarfrost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word, and he melts them. He makes his wind blow, and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. Snow, frost, and ice come when God speaks. They melt when God tells them to melt. God rules the world by speaking, both the natural world and the universe of men. In the book of Daniel, God ruled the Babylonian Empire by speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar through his prophet Daniel. From Adam to the end of time, God speaks to man. Speaking is so central to God's nature that he refuses to reveal himself in pictures. God cannot be represented in pictures, but only in words. 
Any attempt to represent him in pictures is an attempt is to do a terrible insult to God. And that's why the second commandment is a prohibition against worshiping God with carved images. This is why God is so hostile against idolatry. Using pictures or statues to worship God, even the true God, is a gross misrepresentation of his true nature. So finally, at the climax of history, when God revealed himself in fullest measure, he did so by speaking. Certainly, the life of Jesus is necessary for our, our salvation. But when the writer of the book of Hebrews begins to explain the significance of Jesus' ministry, he tells us that Jesus spoke. God has always spoken to man. Previously, God spoke through his prophets, and that was wonderful. But even more wonderful is the present reality that God speaks through his Son. The Gospels record the words of, that Jesus spoke while here on earth, and the epistles are the words of Jesus coming through the apostles. But what is even more amazing than the fact that Jesus spoke to us is that he is the original divine speech come in the flesh. So Jesus was a real man. He wasn't a ghost or a spirit who appeared as a man. He had a real physical body like us. But John did not say that the word became a body. He used the word flesh. Now, the word flesh has a rich and complex use in the New Testament, but its essential significance is a reminder that mankind, the human race, is made from dust and is inseparable from the creation. Human beings are part of creation, and we, we can never be anything else other than that. Man isn't divine. He'll never be divine, but he is more than dust. Man is also a spirit. Now, he's... That doesn't make him different than a creation. He is a creation. He is flesh, but he is also a spirit. Spirit and dust are inextricably intertwined in man. He, uh, he, he is a spirit-dust creation. So when this, the word came to earth to save man, he had to come as dust. The word became flesh. Can you imagine what it was like for God to take human form? God is so much higher than man. It was extremely degrading to take on flesh. Lewis captures this in some of his writings. God's taking on flesh is like you living as a worm or as a maggot. Have you seen maggots? You know what those are, the, the larvae of, uh, of flies? Um, and you know where they live? They live in manure or rotting flesh. Can you imagine crawling around in rotting flesh, trying to get... Uh, enough uh, sustenance to, 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 make, to stay alive. I mean, isn't that thought horribly disgusting? Well, that's a rough idea of what it was like for God to take on flesh. <clears throat> now, flesh is not inherently bad. God made us flesh, and that makes flesh good. Just like maggots. Maggots are part of the God's creation, so that means they have to be good, right? <laughs> Well, they also were created by God, but no matter how good human flesh is, we are created beings. Even in all his original splendor, Adam was still far removed from the glory of God. It was an act of extreme humility for the creator to become part of the creation. So why did he do it? What moved God to take on human flesh? It was, it was his love for us, love for man. God's love is so great, it's greater than we can comprehend. 
Would you become a maggot? Live as a maggot? Die a maggot's death to save maggots? Well, I sure as heck wouldn't. Uh, right? It's a disgusting <laughs> idea. The thought's so revolting. Uh, and that's because I don't love maggots. And frankly, I wouldn't be disappeared, disappointed if all maggots just disappeared. Now, that would not be good for the ecosystem, but, but I, I would not shed any tears if maggots disappeared. But that's not how God relates to us. God loves his poor creatures, and God loves us so much that he did lower himself to our level. As Paul said in his letter to the Philippians, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus, in other words, Jesus didn't hang on to his divine status, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Flesh is the substance of creation. The eternal, uncreated God joined himself to creation so that he might save his sinful creatures. Now, so far we've been saying that God took on human flesh. Our text says the word became flesh. It doesn't say flesh became word. the word. Man didn't become God. God became man. Now, this is might sound like a fine distinction, but it's very important for several reasons. First, the initiative with, uh, for, sa- for our salvation lay with God. Nobody, <clears throat> the peop- mankind, the human race, people on earth wanted to be saved, but they weren't reaching out to God. They were reaching out to manufactured gods or philosophies or, or other sorts of things which were manageable, which they could create out of their own imagination and control. But, but mankind was not reaching to the true God the, the God who would kill them for their sins. No way. But God took the initiative. He reached out to save us. The idea was God's, and God is the one who acted to save man. So God came to save us, and then he took on our flesh. Secondly, God did not elevate man to divine status. Flesh did not become God. God lowered himself to, 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 to human status. God became man. But in the process, God did not become any less God in doing so. The word was God, and the word remains God forever, without any loss of his divine nature. The the divine nature of the word never changed. What changed was adding a human nature to the divine nature. Before that, the word was God. Now, the word is still God, but he's also man. The word is God and man. Human nature has been added to the divine nature without changing the divine nature at all. So Jesus is not half man and half God. He is fully God just as he always was, but he's also fully man. And everything about him is the same as us as far as his manhood goes. Jesus is simultaneously 100% God and 100% man. And that is what the scripture means when it says the word became flesh. By taking flesh, God accomplished something that was part of his original plan. From the beginning, God planned to live among mankind. Adam's rebellion severed fellowship between God and man. For thousands of years, God kept his distance. The men and women who worshipped God worshipped at a distance. 
God was hidden in wind and fire, in clouds and darkness. Even in the best of times, when God lived with his people in Jerusalem, he stayed hidden behind a thick carpet in the dark, holiest place from the rest of the temple. When God sent Moses to deliver his people from Egypt, he said, I am the Lord. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Many years later, after Israel had sinned grievously and God had sent her into exile, even then God didn't abandon his people or forget his promises. There, in Babylon, he spoke through Ezekiel. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and you will be and I will be your God. The last word that God sent before Christ came was the prophecy to Malachi. God referred that he reaffirmed that he would come to his people. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will come and prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. 400 years later, a messenger showed up and announced the arrival of God. And then Jesus came preaching the gospel. Jesus came as a man in human flesh. He was born of a woman. He grew into a man. He learned to walk and speak. He learned to trade. When he entered his ministry, he lived among the fishermen, the farmers, the merchants of Galilee. God, prom God promised that he would live among his people. But who imagined that he would actually become a man and live among men. Later, John heard God declare that the covenant promise had been fulfilled. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, we read, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. By coming in the flesh, God lives with man as intimately as possible. But remember here, the emphasis here is on God as a speaking God. The Word became flesh. Jesus is the communication of God. Part of the meaning here is that the words of Jesus are the words of God. Jesus came speaking with divine authority. He did not say, as the prophets did, um, I, I, uh, thus says the Lord, he said, Jesus, when Jesus spoke, he said, I say to you, Jesus is the word, and all that he says is divine speech. So whenever speak, whenever Jesus, the man of flesh, speaks, God speaks. But Jesus is also the communication of God just by becoming flesh. Hebrews tells us in the passage that we read that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature. Just by becoming flesh, that was a communication that reveals to us who, who, what God is like. When we see Jesus, we see God. God. <clears throat> Before Jesus came, God kept telling us through the prophets how to live as godly people. 
And now God tells us how to please him by sending his son as a man. So the life of Jesus is the supreme communication of God's nature and his will for our lives. Now, if you're thinking that all this is a bunch of theology that has little to do with your life, you'd be badly mistaken. First, this scripture reveals to us that God reveals himself in words, not in images. (laughs) Now, that's not a condemnation of art, and it certainly doesn't mean that Christians may not engage in painting or sculpture or filmmaking. It does mean that we may not worship with images. So we conclude that icon statues, stained glass, they're all beautiful works of art, but the use of them as aids in worship is dreadfully wrong. Secondly, and more profoundly, we learn that God works through speaking. That can be a hard lesson to learn, especially for Americans. American culture has always been action-oriented. Our heroes, our on-screen heroes, are like the Tom, Tom Cruise and, and the others who do things. They don't sit around and talk. They get out there and they, they fly planes. They, they jump out of planes. Um, they, they rush after bad guys uh, and so forth. Our heroes are the strong, silent types. We tend to be suspicious of orators and prefer people who speak plainly. So one reason that George Bush defeated John Kerry in the 2004 presidential election is that Bush sounded down to earth, more like us, more normal, whereas Kerry sounded polished. And a lot of Americans took that as, they, as, as something that they didn't want. <clears throat> Whether for better or worse, that's how American culture functions to a large extent. Teddy Roosevelt, who was hardly a quiet man, said, speak softly and carry a big stick. Emphasis on the stick. So the idea of creating a universe by speaking seems hard to swallow. And sending the speech to save mankind seems ridiculous. Likewise, Americans tend to give more credit to a minister who does something, like feed the poor or fight human trafficking than one who merely preaches well. Well, those are good things to to do, but what that reveals is a failure to understand how the universe works. God works through speaking. His images work through speaking. Our words create and destroy. Our words do things because God's word does things. By your speech, You can lift someone's spirits or cast them into despair. You can give hope to a struggling child or make your coworkers miserable. And we must be especially alert to our speech and the effect of our words in social media. Social media can be used for good, but we can slip into impetuous and thoughtless talk if we forget that there are images of God on the receiving end of our posts. God sent the word to save us, and so you should use your words to help others. Our third application is that when God came to save us, he shared our nature and lived among us. Now, we are the body of Christ on earth. And if God is to save people, it will be because his people share their lives with others and live among the lost. Now, there's a balance here between a life of fellowship and a life of mission. Someone who lives among the lost apart from fellowship with believers will either burn out or or fall away. But when the church uses fellowship as an excuse for shunning the lost, she declares that God hates those who don't believe. We aren't called to lower ourselves to an inferior mode of life as Jesus did. We're called simply to live in the flesh with other men and women who do not know God. 
even among irritating and difficult people. Our human tendency is that when people rub us the wrong way, to avoid them. Well, you know, Jesus didn't do that. You know, and if all Christians avoid the difficult people, then those people will never hear the gospel. Um, <laughs> yes, some people are hard to be around, but God's call to us is to live in the flesh in this world. Read the gospels. Jesus ate and drank with the poor and the rich, the prostitutes, hypocrites. Jesus lived with the hypocrites. Evangelism for Jesus wasn't a weekly activity. It was his life. It was a life of speaking to all sorts of people, even to those who killed him. There are unbelievers in your life. Use words with them. Speak to them about Jesus. You know, it matters a whole lot less what you say than just saying something. The important thing is to say something about Jesus. So Jed works closely with unbelievers at Ruckus Marketing. Christina spends all day with unbelievers at the public school. Carol works for people of many faiths in the hospital. Kenny deals with all sorts of people at his factory. You know, we, we are surrounded by unbelievers. This is God's intention. This is the way God wants it to be. And so we can tell these people how much we love Christmas. Here we, this, this is the Christmas season. You know, that's an easy thing to do. I love Christmas. You know, we had Christmas pudding and eggnog, and the greatest thing is that Jesus became flesh. God became flesh. You know, we can say simple, easy things uh, in, the, in the Christmas season to help people to become aware that there's a God out there who cares about them who, and who's put you in their lives to speak about him. We can say in particular that you're glad to say that Jesus came at Christmas to save us from our sins, to help us with the you know, uh, unvirtuous aspects of our personality. Um, we can say that uh, Jesus clears away our guilt and breaks the power of sin. We can tell unbelievers how awesome it is that the infinite God loves mankind so much that he can find himself to a human form. And we can pray for unbelievers. Perhaps the most vivid example of the word become flesh among people is the man or woman who learns the language and culture of a foreign people and lives among them preaching the gospel. So our church already supports several foreign missionaries, but is that the limit of our concern? Are we hoping and praying that God will call some of our own children and send them out to spend their lives bringing salvation to other cultures lost in darkness? I hope so. By sending his word to us, God unleashed the power to save all men. That's how the book of Romans opens, right? Paul says, I'm convinced that the gospel is power. It's the power of God to save. So missionaries aren't better Christians than other people. And God doesn't call most people to be missionaries. We, we shouldn't be caught up in a frenzy about this, but we should be thoughtful. And so I say this morning to you children, just ask. Ask, ask God if, he's, if he wants you to prepare for a life in a foreign culture. And I say this morning to you parents, Ask God to loosen the strong bonds in your heart and let your children go. It's hard. It's a hardship to see your child you know, run off to some other part of the world and you might see them infrequently again. It's a lot to ask, and I would not ask this if the reward were not so much greater than the cost. 
So let's believe this gospel. Let's pray and plan for the conversion of those remaining cultures of this world where Jesus is hardly known. The final application of today's scripture is the most important and in some ways the most obvious. This God, whose enormous love brought him into the miseries of this world, calls us to share his life. The longing of the covenant pulses through the scripture and down through the ages, that God would dwell with us, we as his people, and he as our God. And so Jesus said at the end of his life, it is finished. And he said to the apostle John, it is done. The heart of God is satisfied. The desire of the nations has been fulfilled. Now, there's, yet, there's more work yet to be done, but the essentials have been fulfilled by entering creation and becoming man. God has torn apart the separation between God and man. This morning, we stand in God's presence before the throne, surrounded by the angels and archangels and all the saints of God. We hear Jesus speaking to us again, and in the most exhilarating mystery of all mysteries, we eat the flesh of God. Now, Jesus is not that loaf there on the communion table, nor is he in the bread. That loaf there is bread, and that's what it is. But Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. If you don't eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus, you're dead. You have no life in you. But Jesus comes to us without changing the substance of the bread and wine. When we celebrate the Eucharist, we mystically eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus. The word became flesh so that we could share his life. And so we do when we hear his words and when we eat his supper. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you humbly and arrogantly, eagerly and resentfully. We cannot resist your love, but we resent our impotence. We're thrilled to hear that you speak to us, but we're impatient that your words are confusing. We sense your presence in the Eucharist, but we're frustrated that we can't understand how we eat your flesh and drink your blood. Lord, we're such a mess. We would never put up with us. Yet you humiliated yourself to be born as a baby, live as a carpenter, die as a criminal for love. Do you really love us that much? We know you do, but it's too fantastic to believe. This gospel appears as a fairy tale to us. So we explain it in terms that make sense to us and in so doing rob your word of its power. Yet even still you love us in spite of all this. As you came to us long ago, so you come to us every Lord's Day, and not in frustration or anger, in love you woo us with your words, and you offer your own body to us. We love you, Lord. Help us in our lovelessness. We ask in the name of him who loves us more than we can know, your son, our older brother, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please stand. To the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God who entered time and become man. To the creator spirit who entered creation and took on flesh. To the father who adopted us. To the spirit who fills us. To Jesus who gives himself to us. To God Almighty.
who loves us with an unshakable love, be all glory and honor and praise and worship now and forever. Amen. Praise God.